Hello and welcome to the first With Relish of 2018 here on the Headstuff Podcast Network. I'm Harry Colley. And I'm Aoife Allen. We're a fortnightly food podcast looking at all good things in the Irish culinary scene. You can listen to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn or wherever you get your podcasts. But please make sure to hit subscribe and write us a review. We have plenty of great stuff planned for over the next 12 months, but we're delighted to be kicking off the year with an episode that has been in the pipeline for quite a while. Today, we're going to take a look at the history of Dublin food and we're focusing on two items in particular, Eva. I'm we? so excited about this. We've been talking about this for months, haven't we? We have, but this yeah. is like, I feel like this is your episode. Oh, great. No yeah. pressure. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I think is... I've been banging on about this idea for a good while since we had our first planning meeting, I think, yeah. way back when. Way back when, yeah. in 2017. <laughs> Last year. Yeah, yeah. miles ago. Um, when I talked about maybe doing a history of like history of the city through yeah, its food so exactly. we're going to go and talk to John Conroy who is I think a historian at the Victorian Fruit and Veg Market in Mary's Lane which is just this amazing place that's actually really hidden but I think it's one of it's one of Dublin's architectural gems for sure it's a red brick Victorian fruit market big like um, what do you call that kind of style like where it's uh, like Georgia Street I don't know like I mean, an arcade the, exactly like arcade, yeah, yeah that's the word I was looking for yeah so an arcade style um, Victorian red brick building that has is like the, models of fruit and veg worked into the Oh I haven't seen that It's amazing so there's bananas and fish carved into the face wow. of the place It's really really and beautiful And is this the one that's up beside Christchurch? Um, no it's on the other side of the city uh, so it's in it's kind of between Smithfield and the forecourts oh, but tucked one. into yeah, yeah, the back yeah, 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 you know yeah. what I mean and mm-hmm. it's just a really really the one by Christchurch is really derelict but this place is still Bombing away. Great that we're not going to a derelict site. Exactly. We're not going to be tripping over dead rats <laughs> and having pigeons flying into our faces yeah. and getting really freaked yeah. out. No, this is going to be real legit and living and nice. Uh, yeah, so I suppose it's just going to be really, really nice to see, uh, I don't know, like a real working space. A traditional space like yeah. that. But I think they've big plans and I'm sure John will be able to tell us more about it, but they've big plans for regeneration, I believe, of the site as well. So that's exciting. We'll yeah. get to hear about that. And then we're going to talk to... Our pal. Our Your pal, pal. My pal. I own him. My pal too. <laughs> so we're talking <laughs> to Dr. Pal. Martin McNamara, who's mm-hmm. from DIT and he was my former lecturer. He supervised my thesis. We had him on the live show for the Headstuff Podcast Festival and very much looking forward to sitting down in the Gravediggers in um, uh, Glasnevin and having a bowl of coddle. Yeah. With them and talking about Dublin food. Yeah, that's what we want to understand, I suppose, a bit more. What's unique to Dublin food culture as opposed to Irish food culture overall, which we've chatted about a lot before. Yeah. It's a bit of a hobby horse of I'd ours. also like to just eat coddle. Yeah, I'm jazzed about the coddle. <laughs> that's too. It's exciting a really cold today. day, a really bright cold day. Br- bright cold day. Coddle. And uh, I, I don't know, often when I talk to people about coddle and I say, oh, I absolutely love coddle, blah, 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 they go, Ugh. No, uh, there's kind wrong. of very real kind of reaction to it yeah. which is just like that sounds disgusting but it's all about the visual with it coddle is actually the ultimate minging looking delicious it's a bowl full of dish. mickeys it's a bowl full of <laughs> raw looking meat <laughs> floating raw yeah. whole sausages that are still white but actually they're a bit grey so delicious though Ming, but it tastes so good like loads of my best childhood food memories are around coddle I know people as well who are like like dead serious about coddle and they have, they're like it has to be white white yeah, white white the whole coddle, way through yeah. do you know what I mean I put cabbage and carrot and carrot in yeah. yeah when I taught that class in John McDermott Street I used to teach a class with mostly women from the local area and there used to be coddle wars in there they'd oh, be really? like white coddle green coddle carrots <laughs> no carrots thickener no thickener loose thick it was like oh thickner. shut up yeah like putting in they'd put in a like spoon and the something? lads in my current um in my current class as well, put in soup powder, yeah. like nor soup powder or whatever to thicken it. Have Whereas any... I like it to be very brathy, like oh, right, yeah. very loose. Um, a loose cuddle is what li- I like. A loose cuddle. <laughs> um, and come here, you're talking about all these classes that you're doing. <laughs> oh my God, Harry. <laughs> that was seamless. I know. Have Guess you any, what, guys? <laughs> yeah, have you any classes coming up that you might want Amazingly, to? Amazingly, I do have a new class coming up at the Fumbly Cafe. Wow. We've had the on. lovely, lovely Fumbly Stables. I'm going to be teaching a six-week course starting next Tuesday, the 16th. And you can read all about it at the Fumbly Stables website, which I think is fumblystables.com. Just Something like that. Google, Google Fumbly it. Stables. Yeah. Ask Jeeves. And the cla- <laughs> Ask Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> the class is called Fumbly Home Cooking and it's going to be like an introduction to doing really delicious cooking at home nutritious mm. kind of on a budget making meat go further all those kind of fun things and as somebody Sign who works, with, who works with you side by side every day yeah. I can tell you that if it's a really really good cook great with leftovers and has this speciality that she calls meaty, meaty veg, veg. <laughs> and meaty veg is just treating vegetables and vegetarian dishes as if they were meat and making them Extraordinary delicious. So yeah. I would highly recommend that you did that. That Harry, anybody you're so who did the nice. class. Well, yes. Thanks, man. <laughs> you got my back. Yeah. So sign up. Hurry. Yeah. <laughs> then who else are we talking to today? Kieran Kavanagh at the Gravediggers as well. Who's going to tell us a little bit more about the Gravediggers as a very old pub and restaurant? So 
like loads to look Super forward to. Super exciting day. And all off site. Yes, which is amazing. Which is wonderful, which, which is means, something we really wanted to do. Yeah, and it means that we're true to our word uh, in what we said in the Irish Times. That we wanted to take it on the road. <laughs> yeah. We're going on the road one kilometre and then another two kilometres exactly. further. <laughs> which is amazing. So let's get on with it. Dream big. Let's go. So we're outside the Dublin Fruit and Vegetable Market on Mary's Lane uh, with John Conroy, who's a local historian. Very excited to be here. Um, this is one of Dublin's absolute hidden gems. It's a place that I think a lot of people maybe have heard about or not even heard about, but wouldn't even know where it is. Um, and somewhere that's kind of dear to my heart because my mom told me recently that my granddad used to walk in here. I think they moved into Dublin from Portran in 1960 and granddad used to walk in here along Dorset Street or Parnell Street from Drumcondra every Saturday to pick up fruit and veg. So I've got this lovely like pretend memory. Obviously it's not real, <laughs> but like this, this imagining of my granddad walking in and kind of browsing and picking out what looked good. Um, and also that my mom said that my one of my aunts and one of my uncles had summer jobs here as well. So it's you know it's a kind of a Dublin institution that yeah. maybe just fell out of memory for a while. Yeah. But like John's going to tell us a little bit more about that, um, about the history of when it was built and its function over the long, long period that it's been standing. Yeah. Well, it it was built in 1892, and opened on the 6th of December. And if you actually look up there between those pillars, you'll see a plaque. Um, Let's walk around which, to the yes, yeah. which has the Lord Mayor's name and all the councillors that existed at the time, including a John Macdonald, who was responsible for pushing it through uh, the council. That plaque, and there's another one at the side, cost £75. A bargain. A bargain. <laughs> <laughs> a bargain. But you yeah. think in 1892, that must have been a lot of money. And... Um, it's still in good nick. You Absolutely. Know? The whole market seems to still be in yeah. good nick. And just where we are, we are just off Capel Street for anybody who doesn't know it. And it w- it's this very strange kind of sensation of going from like new Capel Street, which is, you know, uh, sex shops and Chinese restaurants and uh, Brazilian markets and all that kind of stuff. And then we come right back into old Dublin. And we're standing outside a beautiful, and is it, this is Victorian era. Yeah, but I, I would absolutely deny ever noticing any of those shops in the <laughs> <laughs> Hey, look, I'm only walking past them. I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, what, what, you, what you forgot to mention there is Cable Street is one of the streets that used to have its own mint as well for uh, making its own money okay. at one stage. But coming back to the market itself, if you actually, it, it was a very, very innovative market in its time in the sense that if you actually just walk into it and have a look at the roofing, you'll see where it's at uh, an angle. It's like a lot of old um, factories and buildings you'd see around, but there's a purpose to them in the sense that these were built not before electricity, but the very early years of electricity and the wooden part of it up there which has tiles on the outside or did uh, would keep the heat out during the day but the other side which used to have glass but now has perspex let the lice in as soon as the sun rose in the morning or, mm-hmm. you know so it had a purpose of lice and keeping the place cold because there was no refrigeration Absolutely. and it just kept the fruit uh, going that bit longer. So now the design of the building was kind of based around the situation that they were in. I suppose like in these times when it was originally built, there was no refrigeration or access to that, so they had to make a building that would refrigerate the veg. That's well, to to that would have been a extent. big consideration. And yes. I wonder, could we just have a look at what's going on around the outside? Because I see there's got these beautiful arches. There's one, two, three, four, five before you get to the main arch. And on each different one, we've got a different, like, is it a different fish? There's well, there's there's fish and there's fruit all the way around the market, but the fish in particular, when this was originally built, it was called the wholesale fish and vegetable market, and there was fish sold here. But within five years, it, it was so, so successful for the corporation and made so much money that if you just look to the right, you'll see a rail instead around the car park. Yeah. That they built a fish market there, and moved it out of here and turned this into uh, a fruit and vegetable market with a fish market right beside it. Okay. And um, they they made a lot of money and from it. And is this. there still much fish um, coming in and through the market? 
None whatsoever. None I mean, that was knocked down. And yeah. no, fish doesn't come in here. Okay. I mean, fish now, like a lot of things, is exported. A lot of our Irish fish. And we import fish down. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with grants from the EEC. Like, I, I don't know how true it is, but I've been told that the Dublin Bay mussels that we get come from Galway. But ours go to Paris and to yeah. Japan simply because of grants. So y- you just don't know um, how fresh stuff is or whatever, you know. So, John, can you tell us a bit about, I suppose, the function that the market had in this neighbourhood um, over the century and a half that it's been in operation? You know, was it a very important local employer? Did communities grow up around it? Well, I, I would think so. But I, th- I think it's important possibly goes uh, beyond the local community. We have to remember that a lot of the food supply of the country went through this market at different stages. Like suppliers would have come from Rush, Cabra, yeah. uh, Maid. Was Cabra an agricultural area around? Well, you see, anywhere there was land yeah. around oh, going. Saying, back. I live near Cabra and it's so built up. Yeah, well, I'm it's like, what? <laughs> Growing spuds in Cabra? No, well, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up in Cabra West and my grandfather yeah. grew spuds there yeah. along the railway tracks. Okay. And up in the Phoenix Park, they got the little plots of land and, and things like that. And the cattle used to go through there, which went ended up on the cattle market, you and know. Yeah, yeah, but okay. people from Cabra would have walked here yeah. in this market. And you, you take it, there is stories of people coming from as far as Wexford on occasions with with vegetables but you have to bear in mind vegetables didn't last as long then Absolutely, as yeah. they do now yeah so uh, coming that far would have been risky. impractical yeah you know because if the stuff didn't sell very quickly here in the market it was basically only fit for giving to the pigs okay and that often happened i mean i i often say at home the amount of food that we throw out mm. nowadays compared Absolutely. with those days but everything was done by auction. And you could be an auctioneer in here just by joining an association. You didn't need any qualifications. And basically, every morning, people would queue up along here. Uh, d- different eras, whether it went up towards um, Church Street or down towards Cable Street, different eras that the queues went. But forced in got into their own auctioneer and this place would have been covered with people like you wouldn't see ground and there would be shops coming in to buy uh, the good quality stuff at the beginning an hour or two later what wasn't sold then would be offered to the dealers Moore Street, Camden Street, Thomas Street so they would get um, stuff that maybe just slightly uh, gone off a little bit or torn a little bit which I mean if you've ever bought stuff in Moor Street you'll notice that they won't ever give you the stuff at the front they, they always, always give you the stuff underneath. at the back yeah, you yeah, know yeah, yeah, yeah. but that that's that's the way the market worked the is it still working that way now is it still the same uh, process they don't have an auction anymore okay. and it, the, these guys all have their own uh, shops and different uh, people that they supply that they work but with directly okay. yeah but the problem they have is they can now they can't buy in the stuff as cheap as Aldi and, and Tesco are supplying the stuff so that's causing a major problem for fresh Irish produce and sometimes the stuff is coming from abroad as well like you can see carrots and onions there well the carrots if there's none available here in Ireland they'll come from Spain or for, and if there's a shortage in Europe they'll come from China Okay. You know, so yeah. you know, and y- you just have to question, um, you know, bringing stuff from China and see the little birds uh, popping in amongst them as well. You see a lot oh, of the that little in birds. Here. Yeah, exactly. There's the a little the robin that's jumping yeah. around all over the that's onions, and it's just picking <laughs> the skin through the. <laughs> that's mesh. right. Yeah, and you'll see a lot of that in here. You know, the, the there's nature. Yeah, and there's not a lot of wildlife in this area because it's such a desolate place. There's not a lot of greenery around to no. to encourage. But in here, you you, you, will, you will see that, you know. And an interesting story, which I'll give you. And now, I d- I've no evidence of this being true, but I, I've heard it told by people. 
that's good enough for us. So yeah, well, it's good enough. <laughs> I mean, you know, I I usually check sources, get three or four, but sometimes yeah. with memories, that's very difficult. But there were no bananas come in here during the the war. Okay. So people substituted for banana sandwiches, which were very popular. Yeah. And they used to boil parsnips, ground them down. Oh. That's exactly what my nana did. She told did me about that, and then they put banana essence in the sandwich. And they put sugar. banana essence yeah. in, and they had lovely. So there's two, <laughs> another, another <laughs> source of it. So, two I mean, exactly, can you yeah. just imagine the, the creativity of that, yeah. you know? And how people survived. I mean, they and also treated themselves as well. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, the, the absolutely. Sambo's a treat. Yeah. With yeah. boiled parsnips. Yeah, <laughs> trying to keep that spirit up. How, how, to, dr- how like to dress up a parsnip yeah, yeah, and yeah, make yeah. it look like That's a banana. And the great thing was the parsnips don't go off as quick as the bananas yeah, do. Exactly. <laughs> and I wonder, John, could you tell us as well about the, the division of work and how it goes here? Are we looking at a number of different vendors all sharing the same space? Are they working together or are they competitors? What is the relationship between them? Oh, I can assure you they're competitors. <laughs> <laughs> and competition is fairly rife in here. But one guy did tell me that there, there is an honour um, system in place in here and that they don't uh, try and steal one another's customers you know now <laughs> show, show me anybody's trying to make money that doesn't do that but they assure <laughs> me i'm sure if you know a purchaser wants to buy from somebody else they can you know yeah. but they don't go out of the way to do that they, they look for their own trade but what you're looking at here is they were sold as what was called banks and this fascinated me when, when I started looking at this because it, the only banks I'd ever heard of were the ones that, you know, screw us with our mortgages <laughs> and the likes. But it, it was basically a space here that, that they purchased. There was two reasons why this market was built. One was the corporation was having struggles uh, with money. There, there was new towns that had been built. Okay. Likes of Clontarf, Drumcondra, Ratmoyans, Terranure, etc. And these were wealthy places. And they set up their own corporations or councils. And they took a lot of money away. Ah. But the corporation was left with the infrastructure without the money to pay for it. So that would have been one of the main things. Yeah. The second thing was that markets in Dublin, basically a farmer could come up, set up at the side of the road, and he would just sell flog what he had and, head and then the corpo yeah. would have to clean up after yeah. and he paid no rates he paid nothing okay. and there was also the fact that everything was done by horse and cart yeah. and horses do what horses do they do and they never they do what we all do yeah <laughs> but the only thing is now they separated from the vegetables yeah so it would have been the dirt and the pestilence and all of that you know it was a major problem in Dublin sure. disease okay and markets were a contributory factor to that so if you actually look at these markets, you will see that the banks are risen from the pots. If, if you look behind you over here, so see, it's like an old pathway that you see yeah. around the city. The edges have stone blocks that mm. are put in, and then there's concrete. Now, I suspect that what we're standing on, which would be the road part of it, yeah. for want of a better word, probably has cobblestones under it and it would have been much deeper so there would have been a six to eight inch depth of that okay and the vegetables would have been kept in the banks and the horses would have been kept out here and whatever needed to be done that would have been cleaned up and it it was an innovation in health and safety not very great in today's terms but in terms of the time but it showed an awareness as well. An awareness of what yeah. was causing yeah, major exactly. problems. Yeah. And, you know, it just went from, from, from there. John, can you just finally tell us, what do you understand to be the plan for the place? What do you think is in its... Well, I c- I, I've been listening for 10 years now mm. that there it was talk of a wholesale on this side of it yeah. and then retail on the other side yeah. with see-through barrier right down the middle yeah. to stop people coming in amongst the forklifts. Okay. But I suspect that while there's still talk of that being a possibility, I personally don't think that's going to happen. Okay. I think this will be what you refer to 
earlier on is gentrified yeah. coffee shops. There, there may be some fish sold here, but whatever. But I think it'll be an expensive place. Yeah. And, you know, this is not an area with a lot of disposable no. cash. And, um, a place so it's going to benefit p- people who don't live in the neighbourhood, essentially. But are happens. they going to travel here? Yeah, I wonder. You know, yeah. like, nobody in the last 10, 15, yeah. 20 years has so much publicity on this place. Yeah. Neither the traders nor the corporation. And if you actually Google the fruit and vegetable market, you'll get Camden Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's extraordinarily unknown, yeah. isn't it? Yes, yeah. it really is. Yeah. And, you know, I, I suspect it'll be leased out to some commercial entity who'll then lease out the various units that'll be in it reflecting like a bit like what's in barcelona or down in cork or up in belfast but what it won't have the opportunity to do which i think a successful market needs is to grow organically from an area and supplying uh, the needs of an area and then stretching out Uh, imposing stuff on areas um doesn't necessarily work in it's Ireland. And yeah. it, it is disruptive, really and yeah. in a sense, it's you know, th- there's uh, price becomes a big thing. Yeah. And what I imagine the corporation would be interested in would be rents, which sure. you can't blame them. Yeah, sure. And they're going to, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And without too much cost, and it would make sense to me that they lease it out to somebody yeah. and that that they run it, you know? Yeah. Wouldn't it be lovely if they managed to keep at least half of it running as in its original function, though? That I think it'll lose a lot of its soul if it becomes a big hallway of posh coffee. And well, all these guys, all these guys are going to move out. You might see Kyo's just there. Yeah. Yeah, K and M. Yeah. Now they're going at the end of this month out to Finglas. Okay. Now I can't ever see them coming back. Okay. I mean, why? Why would they? I mean, they'll have more space out there. Yeah, Yeah. and not alone that, but in terms of shifting stuff around in trucks or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a busy spot. And getting out of this neighbourhood. Getting out of this in this neighbour. Yeah, yeah. it 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 really is. So I mean, out in Finglas, it's just going to be that much easier. And they they've access to the M50. So. It's and probably when this does reopen, depending on what the the rent base is for it and the the rates and that that type of thing, you know. Well, I hope that we're not doing a sort of a lap of it as it's kind of coming to the very end of its original function, but it's all to be seen, really. Um, John, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Really, really interesting. I I I suspect this place has lived through many changes down through the years. And we, we, we will see it here in the future. Yeah. But it'll be I think it'll be different. It'll be very different. Magic is real, it's contained within an app. Put your feet up and watch picking talk appear with just a tap. Magic is pizza tacos. Savoy fish and chips. Shish kebab. And spicy crispy chicken strips. Download the Just Eat app and order food for delivery. So Aoife and myself are joined in John Cavanaugh's, also known as the Grave Diggers in uh, Glasnevin. We are joined here with Dr. Marty McNamara. Just want to say thanks so much for coming in. I say coming in, coming all the way over here for a pint and some coddle, exactly. So we've met here and we're looking at four, including Ian's, beautiful bowls of coddle uh, with some brown bread. We got some white bread and then we got four pints of Guinness. So we're just here basically to talk about Dublin food uh, at this, the most... Dublin-centric table going. Martin, thanks for being on the show again. You're very welcome, yeah. So I suppose we wanted to just start by asking you a little bit about what are some unique Dublin foods? Because I think immediately of coddle and it's one of those things, but it, it's, it's had a root of becoming a Dublin dish and we'd like to know a bit more about what else there is and why they've become that what they are. I suppose when you're thinking of Dublin dishes, you have to sort of think of Dublin as a city. And when you think of Dublin as a city, you think of it a place, sort of a cosmopolitan place, a place where people from all sort of social economic backgrounds of all, I suppose, ethnicities and stuff have been coming for millennia since the beginning. So, you know, from the Viking origins all the way up through the sort of the Normans and the time that sort of the Dublin was, you know, the charter was given to the men of Bristol to settle here and all that sort of stuff, that we've had diverse people coming and we've had rich and poor and we've had diversity of as well in what was eaten. Some archaeological digs, you know, have shown, you know, from 
copper lights. You know, copper lights are basically your your your, your dried poo, I suppose, to put it in what? a nice way. You know that they can delicious. Figure, yeah, that they <laughs> that they can figure out actually what was eaten by the people who left them behind. So oh, by going okay, through the cesspits right, yeah. of Dublin, you can figure out what was eaten by wow. the by the denizens. You know what I mean? Who are who are long since dead. Grim but interesting job. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, there. The, 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 there's evidence there to what was eaten at various times in Dublin, and it is shown that actually, you know, some of the Viking influence that had quite a bit of fish was eaten uh, in Dublin, naturally being close to the coast and from the Viking influence. But I suppose moder- more modern times when we think of Dublin and Dublin food, we think particularly really of coddle. But we also think about gur cake. And yeah, you, you uh, said this before, and I haven't heard of gur cake. All right, well, well, then, well gur cake, you know. uh, gur cake actually, gur cake is intrigues me because. Um, I think when you're eating gur cake, you're actually eating history. Literally, you could be eating history. Because a little bit like sourdough, or else a little bit like sherry, in that sherry, you never have a vintage sherry, that yeah. there's a Solera system, that whatever was left over from the previous vintage gets put into next year's... That there's a little bit of history always. Yeah. The same thing is true about uh, gur cake. And what happened with gur cake is that any old bread or cakes or whatever was left over from the shops would have been brought back to the bakery... They would have been uh, sort of crumbed up. They would have been soaked in sort of like a treacle and spice mix. And then they would have been mixed with some um, sultanas or raisins or whatever and sort of baked between two sheets of um, pastry. And so there was a big sort of slab of it and then mm. cut into squares. And then that would be sold out back into the shops the following day. All oh, right, okay. So it was sort of leftovers. It was, yeah, it was, it was basically creating a dish of leftovers. Mm. And it was always it was quite dense. But there's a discussion whether it got it, where did it get its name? The gur cake. Some people felt that it came from the curiers, which were mm-hmm. sort of the, the who used to cure the leather up in the black pits around Dublin. But other people believe that it came from the guys who went on the gur, uh, which was basically the young young Dublin lads who were on the hop from school. You know what I mean? On yeah. the Mitch, you know, also known as on the gur, that they used to sort of survive on eating these on the gur, gur cake cakes. while it's they were amazing, out in the yeah. hop and sort of thing. So there's various stories yeah. attached to it, you know. But that's so something it's not always a home dish. It's a dish that's kind of no, yeah, yeah. Right. It's not a home dish, yeah. even though I think some people now, some restaurants are now sort of making it, you know, as sort specifically. of you know, specifically that or whatever. That defeats yeah. the purpose in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> actually, it was one of the things that um, one of the big bakeries, a big bakery up there on, Tom, on Thomas Street. Um, they did, when 19, the 1916 Revising the Rising was on with RTE, they did a big thing in Dublin in, in O'Connell Street, and they had lots of gur cake, and they were giving it out, which was good. So, gur cake, your mum, Aoife, told you about gur cake, but I, it's a thing I'd never come across before. All I know is coddle as a Dublin dish, and I suppose that's kind of part of the, like, maybe modern Dublin now is that uh, it's very eclectic, multicultural kind of a place, and uh, I didn't grow up necessarily with very traditional Irish food. I grew up eating, like, risotto and lasagna and spaghetti bolognese, like a lot of people my age I think but aside from our gur cake do you know Aoife of anything else that's a like Dublin dish I've taught a couple of classes in the inner city over the last couple of years and a few bits and bobs have come into that like different styles of coddle and so on but one of the guys used to talk a lot about ribs and cabbage specifically ribs and cabbage would that be traditionally Dublin or is that just kind of a national Irish I think it's traditionally I don't think you know it's such an Irish thing but, uh, you know, I think we can probably lose track if we try and start think about what's traditionally Dublin and forget everything else that's eaten in Dublin if it's not only eaten in Dublin, you know? Yeah, of course. Because, you know, naturally, the few things we're picking out, like the, you know, the, the gur cake or the coddle or the Dublin lawyer or later on when we may talk about sort of spice bags are yeah. sort of things that sort of, you know, maybe developed in Dublin but then spread yeah. And, you know, they become global now and all that sort of stuff. But the same is true about, you know, there's not so many different dishes. Like, and bacon and cabbage, interesting, only a number of years ago when I think it was Bored Bia did a what did you eat last night survey or else what is your favourite meal survey. You know, what came out on top was still bacon and cabbage. I remember Enda Kenny was asked if he was on death row, what would be his final dish, you know what I mean? And I remember it was bacon and cabbage. And I know my, my mother-in-law, her favourite dish would still be bacon and cabbage. And it's very hard to beat bacon and cabbage. Like yeah, we, you know, we tend to actually knock it because it's become a cliche. But I think really we need to have the self-confidence to realise that there's a reason these dishes have actually stayed the test of time and modernity and all that sort of stuff. It's because they're bloody good. Yeah, they're they're really gorgeous, delicious. you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, no, that, that, would be, that, that would be true. There was one there I mentioned, the Dublin Lawyer, which is a little bit, and you'll see this in a number of books, you know, sort of cookery books and, mm. and stuff like that. But it's quite an upmarket one, and it's sort of, 
L-A-W-Y-E-R. So basically it's based around a you know a solicitor or a barrister eating it in, in upmarket pubs sort of thing you know, for lunch. And what it was was basically lobster. So it'd be a lobster that would be sort of fried in, in or probably boiled first, taken out of the shell, and then tossed up, flambéed with some sort of whiskey and some cream. And, and that's it, you know what I mean? So it's oh, it, you know, it. It, 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 <laughs> a, a, really, a really nice and a really yeah, rich yeah, yeah. dish, but a, the idea that calling it a Dublin lawyer shows the sort of social connotation to who could yeah. afford lobster in that, yeah, you absolutely, know? Absolutely, yeah. I remember reading somewhere a long time ago that the Thames in London was a really rich source of food for Londoners at one point. People ate oysters and fish caught in the Thames. Is there any such history with Dublin Bay that you can tell us about, like changes, I suppose, in consumption of seafood over the decades? Like, were oysters ever a big part of the Dublin diet? Oh, huge, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oysters were the ultimate fast food. Yeah. And oysters... And actually, there's... If, actually, Harry, you think you, grow out, you grew up out in Clontarf. There's a pub out in Clontarf called The Sheds, right? Oh, yeah, it's yeah. a Connolly's or something like that. It's, yeah. Yeah. But it's known as The Sheds. Yeah. And it's known as The Sheds. The reason it got its name is because it was the Oyster Sheds. Because oh. all the way around there by uh, Dolly Mount Strand, that was all oyster territory. It's perfect for putting out your oysters, you're seeding your beds and all that sort of stuff. And then the, the seed comes in and then you go out and you can harvest and all that sort of stuff. So it was, it was just perfect for oysters. And there was a huge oyster trade and tradition there. Now, I can't remember the exact date, but there was some sort of calamity, some sort of environmental calamity or something like that that sort of put an end to them. And so uh, there's a really rich tradition of seafood in Dublin. Like, what about Molly Malone and the cockles and mussels? Like, was that a, a dish? Absolutely, and not just that, but periwinkles as well were a yeah. huge thing. Like, yeah. who's it? Paula Meehan, who, the Dublin poet, uh, who I think she was poet laureate there uh, up to around two years ago or something like that, or two or three years ago. She's got the beautiful... Uh, she grew up on John McDermott Street or else on just... I think it's Gardner Street or Sean McDermott mm. Street. They're near the old Monto. But she's a beautiful uh, poem called Periwinkles about remembering going and buying a bag of periwinkles off Cable Street or something like yeah. that and bringing them back then to her mom, you know, or to her dad. Yeah. And, that, and, uh, so and the they were cheap, affordable... But that's it because Food. and now they're kind of luxury Dublin women almost unattainable yeah, items. You Dub- know. Dublin mothers in the tenements used to actually go out to Holt and go out to the coast and used to pick these and then yeah. bring them back in. Yeah. You know, so this was you know, this was the ultimate foraging, foraging and yeah, bringing yeah, it yeah, back yeah, in yeah. and selling yeah. it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In the same way as going to the markets with the fruit and veg and buying what was cheap and then getting on you know on your on your pram, you know what I mean, your breadboard yeah, on sure. your pram and selling them and all that sort of stuff and, and and then that leads on as well because whatever was left over then from the markets, like there's a whole thing about the you know anyone who grew up around the markets reckon that no one around the markets ever went hungry yeah because even if you weren't working someone would leave something at your door whatever was left over whatever fruit veg whatever or butchers yeah. whatever was left over you know would be found anew there was a community yeah you know and you never went hungry down the yeah. markets you know so yeah. it was a kind of an exception to the urban poor thing where food could be very hard to come by if you were in the markets you were always going to have once you're in the right tr- once you're in the right trade like yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I was a colleague nice of mine house. who's about to retire soon his, his, his mother told him when he was thinking of becoming a chef says oh, that's a good thing job for you you'll be in out of the cold and you'll always be well fed you know? <laughs> <laughs> pretty basic requirements like we're a bit spoiled now yeah, we don't yeah, really yeah, think yeah, that yeah. way so but she's yeah. totally right when you look at these kind of major food capitals in the world now and you look at the kind of food history they have I think for Dubliners anyway we, there's a disassociation but if you're talking about I don't know the new trend, I'd say not new trend, but the 10-year-old trend of foraging and wild food and all that kind of stuff they're seeing with the Nordic cuisine. Like, we have a culture of doing that anyway. If we're talking about these kind of Dublin mams going out to Oath and getting the periwinkles and all that stuff, like, that's there. That's a part of the history. But it ra- just got a little bit lost for a while. Yeah, but rabbits were a huge part of it, right? Rabbits. Rabbits, rabbits was the favourite thing going. Everyone used to go out, like, they used to go out to wherever, out to Lucan or Chapel Lizard or up to Phoenix Park or out wherever, and they used to be snaring rabbits, yeah. all right, or shooting rabbits. And rabbits was a huge, and not just that, they were actually exporting rabbits. Like, we were exporting rabbits by the ton, yeah. you know, um, up until, the trouble is, I think it was eight, 1948, I think it was, that someone brought in the myxomatosis, because rabbits yeah. were seen as an absolute uh, problem. You know, a so pest, that actually, yes. a pest, mm. yeah. there were so many of them. And I remember talking to, I think it was Tony Kiley works, he wrote a piece about Dublin tenement life, you know what I mean? And he was talking to, to, to women who grew up in the tenements, and they were saying that the thing is, you know, a chicken has only two legs, it uh, says a rabbit has four, yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? More so around like <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. yeah, And it's not you now, they were smaller and all that sort of stuff, yeah. but still the idea was that you got a leg, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know? everyone got a leg. Even though technically you're getting two shoulders now, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Would the Liffey and our position on the Liffey have made a big influence on the food that has, like... Like, say, if it differs from Galway, do you know what I mean? If our access to trade was coming into the Libya, has that made a big effect, do you think? 
or do you know on our food culture? Well, the Liffey would have worked in a number of different ways. Like it would have worked more like the Thames than say thinking of Galway because with Galway don't really have a river. They think that, you know they've the the the, 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 the is only a couple of hundred meters or whatever before. Basically, it's a it's a lake and then sort of a, a bit of a canal and a, without waterfalls. Sort of, you know what I mean? So it's not really something that you're navigating on. You know, the likes of Galway would have had their trade based on being on the west of Ireland and trading with sort of Spain and with sort of uh, around places like La Rochelle and France and stuff like that. So they would have had that tradition. Whereas we would have had a trade coming up the river, but also we would have had food coming down the river as well. Because we keep on thinking places like Kildare or Meath and thinking about Shackleton Mills and all that sort of stuff, the oats, the wheat, all that sort of mill grain would have come down from the Midlands down the Liffey, even though also now with the birth of the canals, they were coming down with the canals and then you know, the, the railroad soon took over from the canals, even though the canals worked for that sort of big bulky things for, for quite a while, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then thinking just about, I suppose, some of the big employers in Dublin in the late 19th and early 20th century, like we know about the biscuit factories and all. Do you have any idea who were the big employers in food and food production? Well, a lot of those food producers now were linked in with the Quaker families. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the Jacobs, particularly. Yeah, you think about yeah. Jacobs, but you also think about sort of uh, Flahavans and you think yeah. about um, oh, yeah, Quaker lamb, yeah, Quaker oats and, and lambs, um, yeah. la- lambs jams and things like that. Lamb but oh, jams. Yeah, lambs jams, jams, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. But they became fruit fields, which then became over by Jacob fruit fields. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, they were originally uh, Quaker families. See, the Quakers were not allowed to join the professions. The Quakers wouldn't take an oath of allegiance to the king or queen or anything like that. So they weren't allowed to join any professions. So they liked to go into business. And then when they were going into business, they wanted to be sort of ethical. And they found that actually the food business was sort of deemed to be an ethical business because you were actually doing good. You were feeding people. All right. You were feeding people. Right. So they were very good business people because the worst thing you do as a Quaker is become bankrupt. So they're very good. And also... I suppose a little bit like, you could you say a little bit like Jewish traders or people like that, that they had a network of similar like-minded Quakers around the world and around yeah. the country so that they could actually work with their own and they had a trust with each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the idea is that when you knew if you're dealing with one of your own brethren, you could trust them. You know, communities abroad, the way the Irish people abroad work, and how communities they come and they settle up. That yeah, indeed, yeah, that you look after your own, even though sometimes how much you can trust your own is another story. But they were quite trustworthy, you know. But like like Jacobs, that that became a huge, huge employer, and it became like not only were they so big, but then come independence, 1922, when they were afraid when we broke away from the empire, they actually opened up factories then in England as well. Yeah, and you know because such was the the demand, you know. And uh, they, they were just, um, it was amazing what, what they were producing and, and the, the quality and the quantity of what they were producing and the diversity of what they were producing. But they were very good to their employees as well. There was this, some of these companies like Pims, uh, like Guinnesses, like Jacobs, like all those, all of yeah. these, they, they, were, they, they had really good, they were the first to have sort of like um, welfare officers. A social yeah. structure for the So staff, they had a yeah. doctor. Now yeah. you could say that there was two sides to that. It made sure that actually that, you know, that their staff were clean and knit free and disease free because yeah. you were producing food. But at the same time, they were actually looking after the it's thing. Too, it's too, uh, what is it? It's symbiotic. symbiotic. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Exactly As in, they had bats. You know what I mean? Yeah. They had. You could go for a swimming pool, so you'd have you have at least one bat a week. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you went for the swim or before you went for the swim or whatever. You know what I mean? But that's a Cadbury's yeah. fries. Um, they were all Quakers all as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were. Yeah, yeah. They were all Quakers. All the big guys. Yeah. Marcy, just want to say thanks so much for coming up and having a chat with us about Dublin food. It's been absolutely fantastic. Like super enlightening. Just wondering if there's other ways people can speak to you. <laughs> Well, I don't know. They can, they, they That's can a clunky segue. There's yeah. a clunky segue. <laughs> I'm open to clunky segues, yeah. yeah. Uh, I suppose, you know, I'm a lecturer in DIT in Cal Brewer Street. We have a new master's program in gastronomy and food studies. Uh, so if anyone's interested in, you know, progressing their culinary education or their, their historical or food education, you know, just check it out. You know, Google, Google as they say, master's in gastronomy and food yeah. studies or, or DT, actually DT, DT9400. If you just go DT9400 on Google, you go straight into it. Yeah, DT9400. And also, we have another thing coming up in May. At the end of May, we have the Dublin Gastronomy Symposium. Now, tickets will be going on sale soon enough. So, you know, watch this space, as they say, because they reckon it will be sold out fairly quick. It'll be online. So, again, if you just Google Dublin Gastronomy Symposium, you'll get the, you'll get the details for that. That's the website for it. Yeah. And just if anybody needs a bit of encouragement about the Masters, there's a module in, what is it, interpreting old? Uh, reading historic cookbooks. Yeah. 
I my heart fluttered when I heard that the first time. It's the kind of thing that sounds like my dream. Like, does that really exist? <laughs> you know? One of the most wonderful things I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it sounds absolutely lovely. I think I'm kind of giving it a bit of thought myself at the moment. So I think what we might do next is invite Kieran from the Gravediggers over to join what I called earlier the Coddle Roundtable. First international Coddle Roundtable where we will have a thorough and serious discussion about what Coddle is and what should go into it. Welcome to the Gravediggers. First ever Coddle Roundtable. <laughs> the Coddle Roundtable, exactly. Uh, we yeah. want to get, I suppose it's the it's the quintessential Dublin dish that everybody talks about and everybody has their own version of what is a coddle. Um, it'd be nice to hear a tiny bit about what we think the origins of coddle are very briefly because we managed to avoid really getting into it with Martin much as we wanted to a few minutes ago. Uh, and then a few, throw around a few ideas about what goes into a coddle and what's it all about. Well, I suppose if we were to discuss sort of the history of coddle, and coddle basically is an Irish stew. Yeah. You know, except it's the exact same thing as an Irish stew, except instead of using mutton, you're using sausages and rashers as such. All right? But then the idea about sausages and rashers, that's sort of our modern interpretation of coddle. I reckon that coddle definitely is a city dish because you wouldn't really get sausages except in a city where you have sort of butchers, uh, where it's down the countryside where people kill their own pigs, fresh pork was available, they used to make puddings and stuff like that, but really the fresh pork was actually shared amongst the um, community when the pig was slaughtered, and then the rest of the meat was actually salted down for bacon, and it could be lasted. There's also an idea, I think, with the city and with tenements, there's an idea that it's actually to do a one-pot cookery, yeah. so that if you have a fire, you know, just one fire, that's all you need, you don't need a fancy cooker, mm-hmm. you put a pot on it, and you can just put the stuff in, and it all sort of cooks in the, in the cauldron, yeah. There is a story that links it, you know, with um, Ring's End and that links it with sailors. And again, when you're at sea, you know, one pot cookery is very important as well. And there's a story that says that when the Irish sailors went over, so many Irish went to Liverpool, that the scouse, as in the, you know, that really, you know, scouse came from coddle sort of thing, as in the one pot cookery. And that, you know, the Liverpudlians are known as Scousers because of Lobscouse, which is basically sort of like a beef stew, like an Irish stew or a coddle sort of thing, but uh, one pot cookery, mariners, seafarers, uh, sailors. So, but there's more modern interpretations of it. And not just that, but even, you know, it would have included all types. Like I found in Florence Irwin's cookbook from 1932, there there was a number of different recipes for Irish stew, and one of them actually nearly resembled the coddle that I had here, Kieran's coddle here in in the grave diggers, because there was actually ribs in it, uh, and there was you know chunks of sort of you know bacon in it as well, as opposed to as opposed to rashers. So, Kieran, talk to us about your coddle. Yeah, yeah tell us your yes. essentially your recipe or well, as much of it as you can. And how give did it you too get? Away. And I think because sorry to interrupt you, but just because mm. it's such a personal thing to many different families, how you make a coddle. How did you decide on a on a coddle recipe? Yeah, it was kind of when we started doing the food here a few years ago, I was kind of doing a little bit of research with the local lads in the bar, and we were just chatting away what their idea with coddle was. So you had things like um, bacon and rashers were a common thing, potatoes common thing, but then people put in tomatoes, some people in chicken soup, some people in mushroom soup, some people put curry powder in it, some people didn't put sausage in, some people browned their sausages, all kinds of recipes. So I kind of kind of went back to the origins of it, origins yeah. of it too so I'm thinking of well what would I use and so bacon ribs bacon pieces potatoes in a broth if you have some herbs happy days if you have some sausage yeah if you have white pudding brilliant yeah. and that's pretty much it and it's kind of the dish that you'll have like fish and chips on the way home or a kebab or a burger years ago back in the 50s 60s or 70s we'd have a bowl of coddle and we went home after a few pints so I kind of want to do something which worked well with Pints of Guinness because we're here now seven generations. We're here quite a long time. And I think it's one of those dishes that really does well with Guinness. And it's kind of salty and it's it's not too heavy. Keeps you warm, fills you up. Happy days. You mentioned there actually about the you know Saturday or Friday night dish. Yeah, you know, the people yeah. went, you know, I think that's really interesting because I've, you know, I've heard that an awful lot. Uh, I've been sort of you know, researching coddle for quite a many years and it was only quite recently that sort of the penny dropped that I linked the Friday night dish with the fact that it was the end of abstinence because like Friday, you know, Catholic Ireland Friday was always fish on Friday, wouldn't eat meat 
But then Friday night dish, the idea is that come midnight, suddenly Friday was over. Your lads were coming home from the pub, the women would have the pot of coddle ready for them, and they'd lash into it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it reminded me very much of sort of the Jewish tradition that you know you couldn't work on the Sabbath, so the idea is that your your casserole was made and it was put into a sort of a low fire. Or, you know that you had to work done the day before and all you had to do was put it in the oven so you weren't technically working, working and the dish was cooking yeah. away so and you're also using up your pork dish on the Thursday cooking it maybe Thursday reheating Friday or Saturday whatever a lot of guys would have it for breakfast too lighter in your stomach after yeah. maybe a few pints the night before yeah. you know it's it's one of those really Dublin Dublin dishes and I think totally. it's and, I, and I think that there's so many different interpretations of it as well like uh, I know my friend and it's the only person I know who had done this her, her name is Aoife I have this Aoife here beside me Aoife number two Aoife number two yeah. Uh, she has coddle every year on Christmas Eve, and it's and so they have it on. They have, actually, sorry, they have it for Christmas morning breakfast, which is a thing I never heard about it for breakfast. Which is kind of, but the parents make it an extra batch of it on Christmas Eve because when they come home from the pub, they obviously attack it and they need enough for the breakfast. But this is one of those things where yeah. I never thought about it like that. I grew up with coddle in a not at all actually. I only I got myself into coddle because my mom oh, yeah. was in, in that very common I think response to many people is like she's a bit revolted by it. My mum's from Yorkshire. So uh, she's in West Yorkshire, so she does really old Yorkshire puddings and roast beef and all that kind of stuff. So she had to learn my grandmother's coddle recipe. And my dad kind of said, was it good or bad? But when I was a kid, I didn't really like coddle because of the rashers in it. Because in the 70s and 80s, some of the rashers weren't shaved so well. So yeah, 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 you yeah, got yeah, the yeah. little hairy rasher looking at you. So uh, I wasn't a big fan of that. So yeah. that's one of the reasons I don't put rashers in it personally. Um, I think it's a waste of a rasher too. But, you know, um, I think it's the nicest of weirdly braised rasher. Yeah, it's yeah. 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 Some people put smoked bacon in it too, like, you know, which gives that heavily smoked I would put I would put smoked bacon yeah. in cabbage in mine. Yeah. I wouldn't put smoked bacon in. I'd keep it pretty pure. That's it. Like, that's just, it's the one thing that was actually... My mum's cobble growing up was divine. Yeah. It was very similar to what I've just eaten but, here. Yeah, but it was a white it was a white cuddle, yeah. It was white no, she put carrots, carrots. in with no cabbage. Oh yeah, but what I mean it was white as in a, it wasn't you know, really I think it in, in, in Dublin I I spent the last number of years now, every time I'm in a taxi with a Dublin taxi driver, I sort of ask, Alright, so tell us what's your cuddle like? <laughs> and you can sort of break it down between sort of white cuddle and brown cuddle. So they either use sort of a bisto or gravy or some form like as you mentioned earlier on, some form of oxtail soup or something like that to make a brown cuddle or else a a white cod, which is traditional in yeah. my eyes, I've you know what I mean, of the boiled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good people fry off their rash, or which, the sausage which together, isn't right which either. isn't right. No. I've seen <laughs> has done yeah. a, 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 he did an Irish Times, he did write the Irish Times, and he did a coddle just before Christmas, it's in October or something like that, and he baked it in the oven like a Lancashire hot pot. Oh, okay. yeah, I've seen a lot of that, so which basically get the, the slice. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I sent him an email, I'm so upset about wrong. it. But I suppose, see, I suppose this is the truth. It's a bit like brown bread, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? There is no right mm-hmm. and no wrong to it, you know what I mean? There is because we all get so agitated about it because whatever our mammy's made or whatever we first saw or whatever yeah. we think, we think that's it, that's it, sacrosanct, you know what I mean? Yeah. Don't feck around with it, you know what I mean? But uh, there, there, was, there was one final colour than coddle, which was Terry Fagan, uh, who did the North Inner City Dublin Folklore Project back in the 80s. Uh, he wrote a book called Murders, Madames, sorry, Monto, murders madames and black coddle and the black coddle was when they were cooking the coddle and a chunk of soot fell down the chimney <laughs> that, that, that you couldn't throw it out so you just stirred it in for good taste you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm completely intrigued by the curry powder in it. Yeah. That's one of those things where I'm like that could be absolutely delicious and I know that Have you ever made curry sausages? No. But I've had curry versed, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I've had, like, there's no reason why it wouldn't yeah. be delicious. Yeah, for sure. But I know that when Magnus Nielsen was assembling the like the, the Nordic cookbook, he's a head chef in a restaurant called... Fabrikum, no? Fabrikum, yeah. yeah, in Jamtland. And like super, super far north of Sweden. And he was kind of tasked with... Um, with just taking all the recipes from the Scandinavian region and one of the things that he absolutely, absolutely, absolutely had to include was curry. Mm. And was just like a chicken curry because that's an, an, an integral part of what's happening. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think you, you mentioned the curried verse. It's like that's 
German cuisine. Yeah, and yeah. I'd be like, this one huge bag. I grew up with curry, so there's no reason why my coddle couldn't have curry. Absolutely. I well, like, I wonder yeah. if they're going to be, if we're going to take that sort of approach, you know. Ah, uh, leave the, me with the, it. No, no, no. <laughs> the, 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 the latest, you know, the latest thing that has burned out of Dublin in the last number of years has been the idea about the spice bag, right? Mm. And, you know, that having sort of curry elements to it and yeah. that, you know what I mean? So, you know, we'll spice, we'll, maybe you'll be actually I getting your coddle in a spice bag, bag or something like that. A coddle box, I think, will yeah. have to be. You know, <laughs> yeah. But I think one of the great things about coddle as well is that there's so few things, so few foodstuffs in Irish culture that we can all argue over oh, yeah. as being our own in a way yeah. that the Italians yeah. fight over what but, kind of a pasta. But if you say to somebody from Limerick or Cork, they might know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, right. So you know, actually, if only you say that, probably Cork, probably do it. Some version similar. If only you say that right because uh, I know a fella who was working for the prison service and he brought in a monthly menu for all of the prison services so that actually to make sure proper nutrition for the prisoners yeah. right and what happened is that the most famous the favorite dish in Dublin is coddle and down in Limerick prison they nearly went on strike because it says we're not eating that Dublin stuff <laughs> they didn't want it they had to take the coddle off the, the, the Midlands I think and the Limerick jails and yet it was the most popular in Mount Joy and Wheatfield. <laughs> so it shows you that there really is a regional aspect to it. Recently I cooked for a young lad in Temple Street Hospital. He was uh, being released and sent home after being in hospital for nine months. He was given 15% chance of living after having a viral infection. And one of the guys, uh, John Doyle, who's a uh, head porter in Temple Street, uh, is a real dub and was talking to Rory about the coddle and how when he's going home, he's gonna, when he gets discharged, he's going to get him a bowl of coddle because he's going to be a real dub because he spent so much time and he wouldn't be from Wexford anymore. <laughs> he would be able to play for Dublin and yeah. that's a decent team. And, uh, so that was the joke from the start when the guy came back to be able to talk. He's a 14-year-old boy. And nine months later, he got discharged. I got a phone call. Kieran can give him some coddle. Cycled down the bike. Big bowl of coddle. Went into the ICU where he's just been discharged. Yeah. There's your coddle. Thanks very much. Good luck. And it, he liked it. So happy days. <laughs> but Wexford is kind of Dublin anyway. We all live down there. So I think... But it was yeah. a lovely thing, and it was just the connection the two lads had over when he was getting better. To, like when you're better, when when you're going home, you're getting the coddle. This when when when. Yeah. So for months we were like, I was like, waiting for the call to go. So that's really cool. Well, it's yeah. well, funny because really what, what 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 that porter was doing, he was molly coddling the young yeah. 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 And actually, that's where the word comes yeah, from, yeah, right. because yeah. yeah, the coddle is basically to coddle, as in that's to it. cook slowly, yeah. as yeah. in to just to simmer or to cook slowly, you know. Mm. And the same idea is to look at the molly coddle someone is to look after someone to mind someone really carefully. So to gently look yeah, after them. And you know also I mean? in the 1700s, they did the, the cold, as you say, called it, uh, was used to feed invalids as That's well. Right, in, exactly, in, yeah. And around Kilmainham Hospital area yeah, was a yeah. big uh, military prison back in the day, and coddle really big, popular in that end of the world. So you can, you can see it, it's a really comforting thing. It, like, it, it sorts you out. Like your yeah. sick stomach, if you're yeah. missing home, if you're missing a relative. I had another a lady in her death. 80s yeah. said, my coddle reminded her of her mother's coddle. So that's a long time to remember a coddle. Yeah. Yeah. That's over 60 years or something. Yeah. That's I think it's amazing. So, so one dish can make people so happy. Yeah. That's great. So instead of chicken soup for the soul, from now on it's going to be coddle. Dublin coddle it's for the soul. With a bit of ribs thrown yeah. in. <laughs> Lovely, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. It's and been Jordan's really been fantastic. The first round table. First, the first of, of many. many. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the controversial. Yeah. 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 Kieran and thanks so much for being on with Relish. Thank you for listening into this episode of With Relish. We would like to thank all our guests for taking time out to come on with us. As mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are a fortnightly podcast, so make sure to check out headstuff.org for our next show. You can download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn and all the usuals. If you like what you've heard, please let us know by writing us a review or following our Twitter page at WithRelishPod. HPN, the Headstuff Podcast Network. See headstuff.org for more details.